I'm back and better than ever. I just want to feel like I'm enough and I want people listening to this to feel enough and so much more. Let's get a little bit more dangerous this season. Let's get dangerously dainty. I just want to reinvent myself this year. I'm just so over being cookie cutter and pleasing others. I want to please myself. Welcome to season two of Dangerously Dainty, the podcast, where we chat with underestimated people who make bold moves. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to the ninth episode of season two of Dangerously Dainty. I'm a little nervous this episode. Um, I'm going to share a personal story. So I ask that as any other episode, this be listened to with grace and understanding. We've all heard or participated in arguments maybe in the past or in the present discussing abortion. But before you skip this episode, I want to stress the importance about this being a conversation. This podcast is about giving those with a passion a platform to share their stories and beliefs. When I started Dangerously Dainty, about four months after my own abortion story, I really wanted to do something to uplift others, even in a small way, and eventually give others a space to speak because it wasn't something that I was given at that time. But now I'm here to tell my story and bring in two guests who want to be listened to with compassion and understanding about their work in abortion justice. The goal here is to validate all of those who've had an abortion, who might have one in the future, and even those who choose to not have one. My guests and I are here to make it clear that no matter your decision and opinions, all people with uteruses should have the fundamental right to make that choice. Before we get into introducing today's amazing guests, I want to start with my story. And I want to emphasize that I'm not nervous because I'm insecure about my choice, but because I'm still recovering from the societal stigma that is placed on the choice that I made. In the fall of 2019, during my junior year of college, I went to a homecoming event headlining Tina Fey. So random. And I wish I could say that I remember her performance, but during that show, 
I started to have a sinking feeling. And after that show, that gut feeling filled with anxiety and nausea led me to buy a pregnancy test. Despite that being three years ago, I remember every single moment in feeling emotion once the stick showed two lines. I thought I have so many other goals before I get to this stage in my life. A stage in my life that I look forward to because I do want to be a mom, but I just didn't and I couldn't at that time. I couldn't give anything a healthy or stable life. I didn't have a full-time job and I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford to give someone else the life that my parents gave me and I knew and know that I want my kids to have. So the next morning, I made the choice, the choice to get on my laptop and make an appointment at Planned Parenthood. I remember every detail of that day. I remember the questions that I was asked, the care and the support that I got. The most ingrained memory for me is lying in this like reclined seat and seeing the lights of the ceiling covered with cherry blossoms to relax patience and I remember holding the hands of two people because luckily I was blessed to not be alone I had the hand of a loved one and even the hand of a stranger a volunteer and I felt equal amounts of care love and support unfortunately I I can't say that society with the various media outlets and discussions and politics it after that moment made me feel that same support I didn't feel that way I can't say that I was happy after it because everyone feels differently after experiencing this and there's a lot more people than you think who experience this one in four people I'm not the only one you now know who's had an abortion. That's a fact. But even though I didn't feel that way immediately, I can say that I had two women whose support and love got me through it despite the external opinions of the country, of politicians and the government. From taking me to the health center, to getting me a cheeseburger after, to letting me talk about it when I needed to and I wanted to. That's how those two women were there for me. And now I can say that I don't regret it. And that as each day, week, and month, and year passed, 
I felt relieved. Relieved that I could get my first internship to study abroad, to meet someone new and fall in love again in a healthy and supportive relationship, to finish school. Relieved that I could get my first job out of school and keep going. So why am I telling you this story? Because I kept it a secret, a secret out of shame and fear, which are the wrong motives for such a long time. And during that time, I learned about stigma and how stories can be one of the strongest ways to combat stigma. I'm telling my story because I want to emphasize that my body is in a political battle because it was a choice that I made for my mental and emotional health. I have different sides of my identity and this doesn't define me. It's a part of me that I want to embrace and love and support, but it's not my whole identity. But it is something that I find important to talk about Because maybe someone who's kept their story a secret will find solidarity in mine. Because in the midst of this controversial political battle, I want all people who've had an abortion to know that you are very loved. Today we have two guests. Shannon Morell and Maya Baker. Shannon has worked at Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts as a community outreach specialist in the southeastern Massachusetts region. Their focus is on expanding abortion care in the community. Maya Baker previously worked at Planned Parenthood Advocacy Fund of Massachusetts as a care for all public awareness coordinator. Her focus was on destigmatizing abortion care via digital campaigns while also working on legislative campaigns to expand reproductive and sexual health equity. Today's episode was recorded on June 9th, 2022. And of course, we've recently learned of the official overturning of Roe v. Wade. To all those who work in sexual and reproductive health care, to all abortion care patients, to all people with uteruses, we stand with you and we hope that you enjoy this episode and learn something new on how you can help us fight this fight. I've been really nervous to do this episode um, because it is something personal and I've never shared that story like with anyone outside of maybe, I don't know, four really close people. And so I felt like I wanted to have my own way of controlling like and, and giving myself that power back. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for you both being on and talking about your experiences and work and what you're all 
trying to do and the different roles that you both have because first it's timely and then just like the personal note and and I started the podcast four months after my abortion um in small ways by just being like creating content on social media and then it slowly became a platform um of a podcast and I just never talked about why I started it um, but but it is because of this, because I didn't have a voice and I felt really isolated and siloed and I wanted to make other people feel good, whether whatever they were going through. Um, because for, for me, the choice wasn't hard, but it was just really stigmatized because I grew up in a Catholic household and I am still spiritual, but I just don't believe the structure and that still is something that I'm like working on um, because it's so embedded into my family and people that I really care about who just don't know. And, and I don't know how they would react. So. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, sharing your story is something you do on your own terms. It's not something you owe anyone. You could never share it and that would be fine, but also some find it therapeutic. It really all depends. So grateful to be in the space where you feel safe enough to do that. Yeah, definitely therapeutic for me. And that took three years. So, <laughs> um, so we can get into how you both started in this field, just in case anyone wants to get involved at the rallies that we've had at Planned Parenthood. A lot of people ask how they can get involved and I appreciate that because I know there's a lot of, um, what's the word, like dramatized activism on social media. And when people actually come and turn out and they're not just, you know, doing it for a facade of wearing pink and the pussy hats and all of that elaborateness, hearing that they actually want to get involved in some ways, it makes me feel good. And I would want people to know how they can get involved. This is like a really good question, especially because so many people don't want to or can't work in abortion or reproductive health care more broadly. But there are so many things that you can that you can do. Um, let me back up like many steps. First of all, Ariana, I'm so honored that you shared your story with us. And it was so like beautiful to hear. And thank you for doing that. And um I always feel so like lucky and grateful when people tell me their abortion stories, they are all, there's always something beautiful and I just love them. Um, I got involved in reproductive health and rights because of abortion stories. When I was in college in one of my very academic -y classes, we read um, the things we cannot say by Jeannie Ludlow, who's an abortion provider and theorist. And she wrote a really like short, super accessible narrative of her own experience working in, as an abortion provider and volunteer. And her, her point was that there is no normal abortion story and all abortion stories are normal. So her experience of, coming, of meeting all kinds of people all in her one practice, um, the level of like the number of abortions that were just mundane, like someone got pregnant, didn't want to be pregnant and came in for an abortion and went away, not pregnant. And like, that was that. And her point was that this was written 
several years ago, like pre Biden, like early 2010s, which is a very different moment in our, in history, but um, she really wanted to talk about the, the mundane abortion, the just run of the mill, normal abortion, which happen like all the time, like hundreds and thousands of people are having abortions every day. And like, that's good, actually, like, that's really a good thing. And I found that just so compelling, not just the statistics, but the fact that so many people have this um, connection that there are so many stories and that politically, at least only the really painful ones at that point got told. Mm-hmm. And now there's been this huge movement of abortion storytellers. I mean, Renee Bracey Sherman is an amazing one. Um, and she talks really casually is not the right word, but she talks really straightforwardly about having an abortion, being grateful for her abortion and wanting that privilege to be afforded to anyone who has an abortion. And I think that that's how I like came to the work. Um, and also why I wanted to do stigma work because the, um, the idea that the only good quote unquote good abortion story is the one with trauma and pain is just a political tool and used to silence people and make them feel inadequate. And also to further divide people who really agree with each other, you know, 80% of the country supports abortion access. Like that won't, that won't change. It hasn't changed in decades, but the grappling over whose stories we can tell is really convincing to a lot of people that, even if they support abortion, maybe their neighbors don't. And the reality is like all their neighbors do. Right. Um, So that's how I got here because I really wanted to, to work on that. Yeah. I mean, if this, if the statistic is still correct, like one in four people, this is common knowledge to us right here in this conversation, but we need to, I think, voice that more that one in four people, there are people outside of me who are listeners, like people outside of me who definitely had an abortion and it's up to them if they want to disclose it to you or not. But I think that there needs to be sensitivity in the conversation. Why it was hard for me to talk about it wasn't because of trauma, but it was because it wasn't because of a trauma because it was a safe legal abortion. And like you said, it was just, it was going into a health center to receive care but it was the lack of sensitivity from press and media and politicians that made me be silenced. And then on top of that, my religious background, I going into church so like with no bad intention, just wanting to, to be a part of a community that I was raised in where I was taught that it's about love and compassion and loving your neighbor. And then being told that what I did was an evil thing. And there was just no sensitivity to the fact that it is healthcare. It was my choice. It's my body. It's, it's out. It's all her like healthcare and it's talked in a way that that it's not a healthcare issue. Yeah, you're right. It's it's not treated like healthcare in many parts of the state, which I'll get into at some point during this. But you look at where I live in southeastern Mass. No hospitals are providing abortion services. The closest one is Attleboro. Um, and again, like I said, I'm going to get into that later. But 
it just shows that it's not seen as a real form of healthcare or healthcare service when we all know it absolutely is. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll go in and answer the question. So um, my, I guess, like awareness of it was, you know, from a young age, but it wasn't really talked about um, in my family. Also growing up Catholic, um, I also have those ties to, you know, or, or at least my um, family has ties to religion in a way that uh, alters their views on certain things, uh, abortion being one of them. Uh, but for me, um, it started in high school when I had a friend call me crying, saying she was pregnant um, and that she needed an abortion. And thankfully, she had really supportive parents who, like, you know, throughout the whole process were there for her, brought her to get an abortion, like never made her feel bad, um, which was a, a great model for me to see, at least, because I think if I was in her shoes, it wouldn't have been handled the same way by my family. Um, so it was kind of good to just like see see that instance. Um, and, you know, I, I supported people's right to choose, but I had never dealt like uh, with something like that at home um, or that close to home. Uh, so from there on out, I made sure that I learned a lot about it um, and kind of just kept up with the news, you know, survive, uh, revolving around reproductive rights and abortion. Um, and I think my first like, real exposure to working in that field or amongst the field of re, uh, reproductive and sexual health was um, when I worked for the Center for Women, Gender, and Sexuality at UMass Dartmouth, where I was a student. Um, it was great. I learned a lot about a variety of things there, but, you know, abortion being one of them, we would regularly bring in speakers. I vividly remember um, we had an abortion provider. I can't remember her name, but... Um, she came in from Tennessee and she talked about her experience um, going to work every day and how she had to wear a wig sometimes to hide her um, identity uh, just so that she could keep herself safe against um, anti-abortion um, folks who would kind of corral outside of her house. Um, she had to find different routes to work, use different cars. It even got to the point where she flew into work um, because of how much harassment she was facing and so was her family and her children. Um, uh, and, you know, it even came to a point where her clinic was in trigger warnings um, because it is about gun violence, but um, where her clinic was shot up. Um, and so to hear those things like really opened my eyes, you know, we live in Massachusetts, still doesn't mean anything is perfect here, but we don't deal with those exact experiences or we don't hear about them as often uh so I really learned from there on out more about it um and yeah I I just you know worked for a bunch of progressive pro-choice candidates too uh in electoral politics um so I was able to use you know my passion for reproductive rights and abortion access uh through those candidates who also supported it um and so yeah I, you know my position as a community outreach specialist in southeastern Mass, we're technically an abortion desert, uh, which means that there um, is no, there are no abortion, um, there are no healthcare facilities that offer abortion access within a certain amount of miles. So um, my job was to help expand abortion access here, among other things, which I don't want to, we can go into later. I don't want to take up too much time in this, in this little portion, but yeah, yeah. that's kind of my trajectory into uh, this field. Yeah. And and just to 
piggyback off of what she said of that provider from Tennessee. Um, I want to make it clear that this, this conversation is really hard to have for those who work in reproductive justice because of fear of, of lack of security and, and safety for not only themselves, but their families and loved ones. Um, and that's why oftentimes you don't even hear ab abortion stories or the stories of providers and employees and volunteers. Um, it's much easier to get the other side, um, antis, to, to give an opinion because it is an opinion. They don't have the risk that pro-choice people have when speaking to this. And that's why it was important for me to open up the space in the podcast, because I always talk about conversations in a way that people should have compassion and an open mind and listen without judgment first. Because oftentimes when people are underestimated or unseen, it's because there's something going on, a bias or judgment that's already prefacing and it doesn't allow for an, a conversation. Oftentimes it's this conversation becomes an argument. And I think it's commonly seen that way, unfortunately. But to get into, let's start with Massachusetts. Um, you already talked a little bit about how the situation here is different than maybe in the South and in red states, but it hasn't been that long ago. 2020 was when the Roe Act was passed. It's 2022, only two years have passed that protects the right to a safe and legal abortion in the state of Massachusetts. But that also doesn't mean that there's issues with accessibility. Can you talk about that and focusing on Southeastern Mass? And then we'll get into the national scale. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it wasn't always this way in Southeastern Mass. I talked to my aunt, I talked to, you know, different folks in the community about what it was like, where, where was abortion offered? Where would people go when they needed one? So, you know, I, I did some digging and I found some information as well. And there used to be um, a woman care center, it was called Woman Care, um, in New Bedford and on the Cape back in the 90s. There was also an, uh, a clinic called Alternatives in New Bedford in the 80s, but those clinics have since closed. And now, like I said, it's an abortion desert, which again means that um, abortion is not accessible or readily available in this area. And when I talk about Southeastern Mass, I'm talking about Bristol County, Plymouth County, uh, Barnstable County, and Dukes County. So I often, when I say this, people will be like, well, you know, if you live in Fall River or New Bedford, um, you could go across state lines to Providence and go to the Planned Parenthood there. But then you're dealing with out of state insurance. So that's, that's an issue <laughs> and there. Cost to, um, and cost to then, even travel now with gas. For exactly. And, and that's to the next point too. People will say, well, you know, there's for Women's Health in Attleboro, which is great. But again, that's transportation, um, that's cost of gas. Uh, we do not have great public transportation mm -hmm. throughout Southeastern Mass at all. Um, so how are these folks going to get the care that they need? 
Uh, they're not going to get it at their OBGYN over here. They're not going to get it at a hospital. And a lot of that has to do with stigma within these healthcare practices. I've been to an OBGYN in the area. And when I was at my appointment, I looked at the doctor and I was like, why don't you offer abortion here? And her answer was, I don't know. So it's just, it's a huge issue here. And so while my job kind of encompasses a lot of different things, uh, my main focus is uh, expanding abortion access in this area. And the way that we're doing that is really focusing on our telemedicine abortion care. So basically that, that launched in mid-October and it's um, a two-pill series that we uh, ship by mail to a person's home. Uh, they can take all of their appointments from um, their phone, computer, whatever works via our telehealth program. Uh, they have to be within a certain gestational uh, age to qualify for our specific uh, telemedicine abortion care. But um, that is something that I've really, you know, been pushing down here and focusing on since of the lack of access. And um, along with that, you know, we do have some funding set aside uh, for transportation and lodging for folks who uh, want to go to our health center in Boston um, and get an in-clinic abortion or, you know, different mm -hmm. procedure there. So that, that's really what I've been focusing on here. I'm hoping one day we can bring one of our abortion providers down here and even work out of an existing uh, health center or clinic. But for now, that's, that's what we're focusing on. And, and I definitely don't want to leave out the fact that even for folks who live on the Cape, if they were to drive to Boston or anywhere else, that takes hours just to get an abortion. So, so I wanted to note that as well. To, to briefly note on telemedicine abortion or um, a telehealth for abortion pills, it should be accessible to people in the city who might not be able to for any reason, be able to go into a clinic or maybe they feel uncomfortable with a procedural in clinic abortion. Um, this is also, that should also be an option to, to anyone. And of course, then on top of that, we're talking about Massachusetts and people traveling within the state or to states, you know, mileage wise, not as far as what people in Texas, for instance. And I use Texas as the example, because that's what everyone is talking about right now. Telemedicine abortion care can very um, revolutionary and, and life-saving for people in the state of Texas who can't leave the state or even, even when it was legal in the state of Texas drive to health centers that were way out of the way for them. It's, it's crazy to think that people still use the argument that, well, you can get an abortion in another state. How the hell are people going to get airfare or fill up their gas, their, their cars with gas? Where are they going to leave their, their children? How are they going to get time off of work? That is a privilege if you are able to do so. And that's just not the majority of people. That is a minority. I was just going to say that there really are barriers everywhere to this care. And like it, even beyond what we're thinking, there, we really never know someone's circumstance. And that's what I try to keep in mind and what I try to push when I was originally doing this work. Um, they weren't going to include Bristol County in it. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, 
there are two working class cities in Bristol County, uh, and they need they need this access to care. They need to be focused on and you know this expansion. And this is all to say that, like Ariana said, um, telemedicine abortion is obviously offered offered all over the state, not just specifically where I am. It's just something we're kind of pushing down here. I thank you for uplifting that about work working class communities as well and then that's whole a whole other conversation right about how historically minority communities bipoc communities have it's it's a sensitive topic right because of historically the way that leaders in reproductive justice have been very exclusive and not inclusive of bipoc folk and patients and let's just call it like it is margaret good old margaret she practiced forced sterilization for instance in puerto rico and when i found that out as someone who identifies as puerto rican i was i was shocked i i didn't know about that and that's why it's it's really important to approach this conversation because it's very intersectional to approach it without a, quite frankly, a white feminist lens, which again, historically it has been approached in that way because there are people who support reproductive rights and the right to an abortion and are pro-abortion, but will not identify as a feminist because of the rejection and the discrimination that that movement placed on their communities. And that should be a validated sentiment. And that's why we have to move away from talking about this as a woman's issue, because it is not a woman's issue. It is a people's issue. It's a healthcare issue. And it's not just women who have have pregnancies. It's anyone with a uterus. That's why I emphasize that in the introduction. Before we get into stigma and all of that, um, Maya, can you break down a little bit of the national um, landscape on on abortion access? I would love to. So we're gonna. I can do a little bit of the national history of abortion, really quick, much less complicated than it really is, and yeah. then we can talk about what we're facing now. So many. People are really surprised to learn that for centuries, until 100, 120 years ago, abortion wasn't regulated at all. It was not considered part of legal, um, like part of the legal field, like all medicine. Um, abortion didn't, wasn't subject to the same regulations that um, medicine now is. That's obviously like not good. It's, it is very good that we have safe and regulated medicine now, but um at least when the U.S. was founded in the 1770s, abortion was completely legal um, under English common law, which is the legal doctrine that the U.S. was founded under. Um, abortion was totally fine until the moment of quickening, which is the first time that the pregnant person like feels the movements of the fetus. Even after quickening, abortion was acceptable, but subject to not bans or restrictions as we currently know them, really subject to the difficulty of finding a provider. Um, there was no such thing as a licensed provider back then because there were no licenses. But for the first 100, 120 years of the United States, there were no laws about abortion. 
this changed when medicine as a profession started to professionalize. So basically, medicine had been practiced by lay people, um, midwives, people of color, notably enslaved Black people. Medical men, like white men who decided that medicine was now their field, they were going to make money from um, practicing medicine and they were going to be the experts on medicine, purposely started excluding women, people of color, enslaved Black people, um, anybody who wasn't a very particular race, class, and often financial standing. So as they, as these white men professionalized medicine, they completely excluded all of the abortion providers who were almost always women or people of color or people who could get pregnant who weren't considered by these white doctors appropriate medical providers. So even though obviously safe medicine is important to us now, at the, be- at the very beginning of the medical profession in the U.S., so many people were ex- excluded on purpose to make the profession a white man's job. Yeah. So around the same time, because of this professionalization of medicine, laws and restrictions started being passed state by state, banning abortion. Margaret Sanger was operating in the early 20th century, giving birth control, which was also then illegal to not only married people, but single people, which was like hugely scandalous for the time. Um, Margaret Sanger obviously was a racist and eugenicist. Like that is just a fact. Um, And it's also a fact that her, both her philosophy and her whole mission of making reproductive choice of reality for people in her community, like that philosophy was built by black women and people of color in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Margaret Sanger happened to be the figurehead for it. Right. So we had about a century of increasing restrictions and laws on abortion, again, on a state-by-state basis. Then we get to 1973, which is Roe v. Wade. So for decades, um, feminist lawyers, all white women, all white feminists had been looking for um, a chance to make abortion legal nationally. And they got it with Roe versus Wade when the Supreme Court made abortion legal across the whole country in 1973, um, they founded that decision on the right to privacy, not equality of genders, not equal opportunity under the law, not you know our God-given right to live as humans, mm-hmm. but privacy, which is the same principle that made um, birth control available. Whatever, I don't, whatever. Just the choice of words too, like privacy, it makes it seem like, like secrecy. Exactly. And and then that just casts on more shame. Yeah. The idea that abortion and sex and sexuality are solely private things is a huge reason that we're in the position we are today. Yes. And the way we got there was after Roe v. Wade, racist politicians, pure white supremacists who were angry about the integration of schools picked abortion as an issue that they could use to drive voters to Republican politicians. So the anti-abortion movement in the U.S. really began and coalesced around white supremacy and not wanting Black young people to study alongside white young people. That is well-documented. They were open about it at the time, and it worked. The anti-abortion movement, which began in the 70s, has built and built they have a lot of money from very rich people. 
And right now, the number of fake clinics, aka uh, what looks like a healthcare provider, but is really just a, basically a club for people trying to scare and guilt you out of getting an abortion, mm-hmm. outnumber actual abortion providers by some wild statistic. Like there are four fake clinics for every one real abortion provider. Um, and they'll disguise themselves as a crisis pregnancy exactly. center. They'll say like pregnant and need help, come join us. And when you go see them, they, maybe they'll give you an ultrasound, but they will lie to you about abortion. They'll tell you it's too late in your pregnancy to get an abortion. Always a lie. Those, those clinics are an example of weaponized abortion stigma and also the like terrible um, state of abortion access in the country, which is about to get much worse because the anti-abortion movement has also been fighting in the courts and in state legislatures for decades. They've been to... playing the long game. Exactly. This really didn't happen ever like overnight. I think before you go into this, I, it's baffling to see friends or supporters say, oh my gosh, I didn't know that this was happening. This has been happening for some time it's just because it hasn't been uh i hate to say it trending news story and it's like anything else in this country until it gets shit hits the fan then they won't talk about it until it gets to that point and we've been at that point last summer it was already a really scary scenario yeah, we, there have been anti-abortion laws passed in state legislatures for decades. They keep going to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court kept striking them down. And now with a really radical anti-abortion fundamentalist, white supremacist majority on the court, um, the current case, which is out of Mississippi, I think it's called mm-hmm. Dobbs v. Jackson. We, like, Mississippi asked the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade explicitly. And in the leaked decision draft that we saw last month, the court not only in that decision draft, this is not an out decision, no laws have been changed, but in the draft leak, the decision not only would fully overturn Roe v. Wade and completely turn the, the decision of whether abortion is legal back to each state legislature, it also... Um, Open, I opened the door isn't even the right word. It's it's the decision would be ushering us through the doorway to criminalizing birth control, criminalizing queer people, criminalizing mm-hmm. trans people, um, criminalizing interracial relationships. Yep. This does not stop at abortion. And this was their goal the whole time. The anti-abortion movement was founded on white supremacy, and their goal has always been a white ethno state. And they think that banning abortion is one of the ways to get there. It is scary. This this conversation, these rights for abortion is just one of the many political battles that has looped in religion just for to get su- supporters, not because the politicians themselves believe that it's a faith based argument, but it's for votes and numbers. This is just one of the many arguments that loops in conservative values. I'll link in the episode notes, a great book by one of the founders and leaders of Black Lives Matter that talks about that and how we saw the height of that in Reagan, in the Reagan era. 
Shannon, do you have anything to add before we get into stigma? No, I mean, um, I'll send you the link for it, but I would just say if folks are interested in seeing how many, so the abbreviation is CPC, so crisis pregnancy centers are around them. Um, it's called crisispregnancycentermap.com. Um, as soon as I found that resource, I found out that there were six active CPCs in Southeastern Mass. Like Maya said, they just kind of disguise themselves as a clinic, uh, as a healthcare clinic when really they're not, who will help pregnant people when in reality they're there to weaponize abortion and uh, try to harass and persuade people into not getting one. Um, so definitely recommend that resource, but that's all I have to add. Yeah. And we'll get into a little bit more about SB8 and the current number of states where are considered hostile states and trigger bans and all of that. But but to take a pause on, on that conversation and loop back into abortion stigma. Yeah, um, well, I'll go first, but just noting that I've learned a lot about abortion stigma from Maya. So I'm <laughs> sure that uh, she'll have a lot to add that Same will be here. more eloquent than me. <laughs> um, <laughs> truly always knocking it out of the park. Um, so. Um, abortion stigma is, you know, a shared understanding that abortion is morally wrong uh, and or socially unacceptable, which we know is not true, but um, the stigma can manifest in many different ways in media and in policy and in institutional settings, like I said, in hospitals, uh, in health centers, communities via uh, religious beliefs like we have experienced ourselves in relationships and on an individual level. It also is, you know, upheld by the lack of education. When I first learned how simple in clinic abortions are and how simple the tools are, I was amazed. And, you know, when we say the word abortion, we, uh, our first instinct, because of all of these in, uh, abortion stigma influences, is to think that it's just a dangerous and scary thing, which it absolutely is not. Every person has a different experience with it, and that's not to negate anyone's experience, but I learned about uh, what an in-clinic abortion is like through um, this thing called the Papaya Workshop. Um, it's really great. Definitely recommend it. Um, they can help you like gather the materials, et cetera. So look it up. And I performed an abortion on a papaya. And like I said, I was shocked. I was like, I did not realize that it was this simple. But I'll let Maya take it away because I know, I know she's got some good stuff. Yes. That was great. I love the Papaya Workshop. Um, I think what I would add is that when abortion is seen as undesirable or wrong, it's because of transgressions of gender norms. Um, so the word stigma, to get super academic for a minute, the word stigma in Latin means mark. And so when someone is either experiencing or enacting stigma it's be in relation to abortion, it's because the abortion is the marker of the transgression of a norm. So when someone is having an abortion, it means that they either had sex for pleasure and didn't want to get pregnant and are now becoming not pregnant, or it means that they are in some way, again, like this is a social understanding, not what I believe, but um, it means that they are rejecting parenthood in some way. That's obviously not how everyone who has an abortion feels. Um, many people have abortions for wanted pregnancies for tons of reasons, but um, Abortion marks someone not wanting to be pregnant or not being able to sustain a pregnancy. And that itself 
is a rejection of a gendered norm, which is that everyone who can get pregnant is a woman and everyone who can get pregnant wants to be a mother and has to be a mother. Um, that's in addition to being extremely sexist, it's also really transphobic. The political project of eliminating trans people and banning abortion is the same project. And abortion stigma operates really intentionally to erase people's experiences, to make them feel voiceless, to convince people that fewer people support abortion than really do. Like I said, 80% of the country supports abortion access, which is like literally one of the, it's one of the most agreed on topics. It's far from one of the most divisive, but in every news story about abortion, you'll read the sentence like abortion, this very controversial issue. Just not true. Just, that's just completely not true. And that sentence itself, the belief or perception or narrative that abortion is controversial is a function of stigma. Um, It makes people feel ashamed or scared. And it also makes people who haven't had abortions more uncomfortable about speaking out. Um, Another huge aspect of abortion stigma that I want to elevate is the partners of people who've had abortions, whose voices are by no means as important as the voices of people who've had abortions. But many, many people have benefited from abortion who are not only the people having the abortions. There's a lot of kind of unpleasant jokes about like the Republican politicians who want to ban abortion for everyone except for their own girlfriends. Like that's honestly true. Like men do benefit from abortion, even if they're not Republican politicians. Um, And it's a good thing that men benefit from abortion. Um, Abortion isn't good because men can benefit from it. It's important. I mean, cis men can benefit from it. It's important because everyone benefits from abortion. And I think that that is like the, the place that I have ended up on abortion stigma is that, or at least that makes me most capable of rejecting the stigma that I come across and remaining resilient is that our whole world, all of our lives are possible because of abortion. Even if we don't know someone who's had an abortion, which like we all do, if, if you know it or not, um, the way that our world is structured is because of the power and love of people who've had abortions. Um, Sometimes it's because of their abortions. Sometimes it's for a different reason, but we are all like, we are all standing on the shoulders of people who've had abortions, even if we don't know it. Um, And as gross as abortion stigma is, that is what makes me most um, like fired up to fight it forever. Yeah, those are all good points. And I I also meant to add in too, like I think when like folks generally think about abortion again, because like Maya made clear, um, uh, the media portrays it a certain way than how the population actually feels about it. Um, Most folks who get abortions already have children. There's such a stigma that it's like a young person or something like that, when really it's not. Um, And there's a need there for it, like there always is, right? And another thing I wanted to touch on too was like the pro-choice versus pro-abortion. I've started to just say I'm pro-abortion because I find that when people say they're pro-choice, they uphold abortion stigma within that by then following, I don't really believe in abortion, you know, but I believe in choice. No, let's be clear. I believe in abortion. I believe in everything about abortion and what it offers and the care that folks can get from it, period. Like that's it. And that's something that Maya also helped me kind of realize, like I, 
in the past when I was pro-choice, I would never say, you know, say it in the way that I mentioned, but saying that you're pro-abortion is, is helping dismantle the stigma that faces it. Um, not fully, but in a little way, you know? Yes. And, and to your point about like um, a lot of people who have abortions already have children or are caregivers in some capacity and, and that the stereotype is that it's young people. I mean, there are young people who will, but the majority is, is the former. It's kind of like the stereotype for decades of, of like feminists being women who don't shave their legs or like burn their bras like that happened once and like it wasn't uh like a historical phenomenon and that's not even what it's about is the point that's not what it's about and a lot of the time from what I've learned from Maya is the usefulness of representation in the media about abortion that can help to destigmatize it when it's done in an intentional meaningful way. And I'll link, if I can find it, a really great article that with photos for those who are like visual people captured the abortion process from entering the clinic and being visited by escorts and volunteers to, to see the fetus of like what people assume that it is, is not really what it visually looks like and it is less daunting once you see those pictures and it's really easy to say all of this that we're saying and and I acknowledge that it's hard for people who like this is you know they're not educated on it or they've grown up in households where it's been very stigmatized and it's a process of getting to to that point of of understanding that the country and the world is built off of people's backs who had an abortion. Like even you saying that is just an added piece to my puzzle of dealing with, with the stigma that I received. And that is helpful to hear, but, but it, it's about having these open dialogues and the representation and the education and the awareness that allows people from different backgrounds to, to learn about it. There's always more to learn too. I'm constantly learning and catching myself and realizing that even in my, the, the words that I say or the things that I think they could hold stigma in many different realms. So I think that folks need to be open to that too, because it can seem kind of daunting to just start caring about these things and feel like you're not doing it in the right way. Um, mm-hmm. But there is no right way. And there's always a path to learn. So. Plus we're here right now because of you, Ariana, you started your podcast and brought us on, like, this is happening because of you. Um, and I think that that also is like, I find that really lovely and just a reminder of why abortion is so important and how we are all connected. Like the three of us are connected through having worked together yeah. and through wanting to make abortion accessible. And that's really powerful and, um, and personal as well as political. Yes. <laughs> uh, to backtrack a little bit, you talked about how really it was the, the leadership of white men in the 1700s and then who 
took away really the power of being able to like practice medicine and health from those who probably more expert and qualified. Right. Um, and it's similar it, when you said that it, it, it sounded really synonymous to what's happening now in the sense that the country's sentiment, as we've already made it clear, the majority does favor maintaining Roe v. Wade, but it is the, the opinions of those in leadership, those few people in the Supreme, in the Supreme Court. Can, can y'all break, da- break that down a little bit more for those who, you know, have seen um, Judge Jackson uh, being nominated and we, we saw the hearing and, and everything happened. And, and some friends of mine asked, well, if someone like her is on the Supreme court, how is this still happening? Well, it's so much more than just that. This is a really complicated question. I think, I mean, the first thing is that just it soon to be justice Katanji Brown Jackson isn't on the court yet she exactly. only gets on it once Stephen Breyer who's like 100 years old steps down right um the other thing is that even with her on the court the justices cast votes there have been you know nine zero decisions eight one decisions but there are nine justices and if a majority of the justices vote one way the minority opinion doesn't matter mm-hmm. um there's currently a five four very conservative, like very fundamentalist majority on the court with Justice Jackson, that'll be the same. Her work is important and she's amazing and she can't outvote the five just so unbelievably conservative people. I also, I mean, the Supreme Court is a deeply undemocratic institution. Um, All of the justices are appointed Um, Five of the nine were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote and only became president because of the Electoral College. That Mm -hmm. is really disturbing to me. And like we talked about with the white supremacist origins of the um, anti-abortion movement, with the intentional deploying of abortion as a political tool, one one of the weapons that has been most effectively used to get extremely conservative, very fundamentalist religious politicians into seats of power, including into the Supreme Court, has been demanding that they would overturn Roe v. Wade if given the opportunity. And that's what happened. Um, The majority on the court is anti-Roe. And we're seeing that through the, we're seeing that happen because of the historical and continuing domination of white men who don't respect anyone else yeah Yeah. and and it's important to note that like you said the majority of them were elected during as a result the 2017 2017 2016 2016 2016 election and i know right now i've been really discouraged with voting and sometimes i'm like Mm -hmm. Does it, does my vote count? Does it matter if these things have happened? Right. And I get people who make those arguments a hundred percent. A lot of us having that mentality will lead to less voter turnout. 
I mean, I don't know. What do you, what do you all think about how to encourage people to do something on like a personal and political level when we know that people are kind of discouraged at the moment and, and burnt out because of a continuous failed system? Yeah, I mean, as someone who used to work in electoral politics, I feel that. Um, it, the U.S. Supreme Court in itself is not representative of the U.S. population. And like many things in this country, it leans on fundamental conservative conservatism, can't talk, um, yeah. and, you know, sides with archaic, traditional over fundamental human rights. And that is not just the Supreme Court. It's a lot of our systems in place. My, my focus lately when it comes to, if we're talking about like giving people hope in, in any of this, is, is focusing on local politics, to be completely honest. But I do know that abortion is, is bigger than that. Um, I would say just, you know, staying educated and aware and involved to whatever capacity folks are able. Um, like I said, there's always like a path to learn. Um, I would say donating to abortion funds. Um, over health clinics, uh, to be completely honest, because places like Planned Parenthood will tap into those abortion clinics if patients cannot afford um, care. Putting pressure on public officials when it's needed definitely uh, is important, right? Um, I think we've seen, we've seen that throughout politics that when enough pressure is put on certain elected officials, sometimes things can change. So we just have to keep that in mind. But I definitely do feel the burnout of, of politics in, in general. And then, you know, just changing your language to be inclusive, like you mentioned, um, I know you talked about earlier, making sure that, you know, we involve all folks of all genders, et cetera, within these conversations and reaching out uh, for help when you need it. Reaching out to folks at health centers like Planned Parenthood, we're here to help or your friends or people you trust. I think the way that at least I have found hope is that um, feeling involved does make me feel hopeful. Giving money to abortion funds and independent clinics all the way. If you donate a few hundred dollars over the course of a year to an abortion fund, you've funded someone's abortion. You made it possible for someone to get their abortion. Another big one is being a clinic escort can be great. That is another really direct way of giving support to people getting abortions. I also really advise signing up to volunteer or finding out the ways you can support, um, again, independent clinics and abortion funds. Big national organizations also need volunteers, but they, they like have enough volunteers. The abortion funds need help now. Um, if they want you to answer phones or um, help sort paperwork, like that's what they need. That is basic. That's a form of mutual aid. That's you helping your community. Um, that's a big one. I also think that part of doing the work, is, like Shannon said, is getting um, more exposed to information and education. And you can do that by like watching TV about abortion. Like you can watch Little Woods or Obvious Child or an episode of Jane the Virgin. And like that's doing abortion work um, even on your own, which is also crucial. And then I want to like bring up that one of my favorite people alive, Miriam Kaba, is a prison abolitionist and an amazing activist and writer. And she says that hope is a discipline and that like hope is a foundation for action, which I really try to hold on to and do in large part to Miriam Kaba's like work and elevation. 
There's a new abortion clinic in Maryland. They crowdfunded $250,000 to start to build a clinic, hire staff and start giving people abortions through every week of pregnancy. And like that is community care. Like that's a fully community funded abortion provider, which is so amazing. And seeing things like that happen and knowing that like we and so many more people are so aware of how fucked up this is and how like we we can take action to help it. I think that that's not naive. I think that that's actually right. Like, like fuck the Supreme Court. We're getting abortions anyway. Like, yeah, that's that's the message. Yeah, that's the attitude too. I love that. Yeah. Absolutely, it's a sign of hope when people check in with providers and people who work in this field because there is burnout and there is a lot of overturn and uplifting the spirits of others who are doing this work can make a difference in these organizations that are really trying to do their all. Like the staff is working there because this this is something that they truly believe in and want to help people with. Let's let's talk about the the current state of affairs right now um 14 protected states 26 states that are hostile and then 13 trigger bans we already covered the status of abortion in the state of massachusetts but what is going on uh nationally specifically with what it means to be a protected state and a hostile state what are trigger bans and copycat laws And I'm hoping to end with this question because maybe it'll get people's fires lit a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, um, I think, well, first off, I'm going to send a resource over um, that I found to be really useful. Um, It's uh, reproductiverights.org slash map slash what if Roe fell. And it's a great interactive tool I learned through visual uh, aids and it's really helped me kind of understand where we're at. Um, So it's important to note that there are no states with a total abortion ban yet. Um, Despite, you know, all the media surrounding the leak and everything, um, abortion is still legal in all states. Um, So like you said, around 20 states have abortion bans that vary in uh, gestational age. But it's important to note that some of those states like Massachusetts, Kansas, and Iowa um, are protected uh, despite the gestational limit. So there's, there's some... Some things in there that we have to make clear. Um, yeah. And again, this resource really helps visualize it. Um, there are 14 protected states, Massachusetts being one. And when I say protected, I mean, um, you know, if, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, um, it will not affect abortion care in these states. Abortion will still be uh, safe and legal. Um, that that is with a caveat because you know we never know. But as far as far as right now, they're considered protected. Um, there are 26 states that are hostile, which means uh, they likely will try to prohibit abortion overall. Um, and there are 13 states that have trigger bans. Um, and so trigger bans, you know, or abortion bans passed since Roe uh, was decided that are intended to ban abortion entirely if the Supreme Court limited or overturned Roe, or if a federal constitutional amendment prohibited abortion. Um, but because of Roe, none of these bans are enforced currently. Um, so I don't know if you want to hop into it a little bit more, Maya, but 
those are kind of the stats of where we're at right now. And like I said, this resource is it's great and updated and can help you kind of understand that like with Massachusetts, even though we have a gestational limit to 24 weeks, um, which can also, uh, there, there are instances where that can, um, where that's not always the limit, right? If, if right. There are certain instances. Um, Exceptions. Uh, we are Right, right. So, so yeah, important to note those that, that it's not black and white and there's always gray area within it. Yes. Yeah, I think that was exactly right, Shannon. I think, I mean, in Massachusetts, um, if you are 16 or over, you can get an abortion. If you are under 16, you have to either have your parents' permission or go in front of a judge to get the judge's permission if you don't want to talk to your parents. Um, that is a really ridiculous uh restriction that mostly it only affects young people it mostly affects young people of color um time to get rid of that the row act did um like soften that restriction but it's still in place for people Mm -hmm. under 16 um you can like shannon said you can get an abortion up to 24 weeks and after 24 weeks in some cases um notably um if the life of the pregnant person is threatened or if there's a fatal fetal diagnosis Mm -hmm. um obviously the the right gestational limit is none. Like people need abortions at all points of pregnancy um, for all kinds of reasons. The most common reason that people have abortions later in pregnancy is because they couldn't get care earlier. Yeah. Like that's a result of bans and lack of access. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think my last thing is that even in states where abortion is legally protected with the fall of Roe v. Wade, when other states have, um, abortion bans and their clinics can no, and their providers can no longer provide abortions, it, it will get harder in protected states to get an abortion because of the influx of people from out of state, which is That's a right. reason that anyone, um, any existing provider like can and should expand their services, pay their staff to stay like, um, this is a tall order, but we are, we're like looking down a pretty scary future. Um, yeah. and more, more abortion access in the States where it's still allowed is like, is what will save us as well as things like telemedicine, um, medication abortion, which you can keep in your like bathroom cabinet for like two or three years until it expires. Um, yeah. yep. that's what we need now. Yeah. It's a domino effect um, essentially. Right. And I just want to name in in case folks listening don't um, know what this means, gestational age, when we say that, um, it basically is just how far along with pregnancy a person is. And why it's important, like at any stage, I mean, to give an example of a state, Florida, there could be a law that even bans abortion for those who have ectopic pregnancies, which means that a a person could experience a rupture and then potentially, you know, have their life at risk all because, you know, there's a ban in place um, that does not allow for these exceptions. Um, So this is how, you know, severe it can be. And it bleeds into the conversation of maternal health crisis that is the United States um, and how it really affects um, Black people, BIPOC communities, whether it be no accessibility to checkups and things of that nature during pregnancies, and then even post uh, delivery, 
you know, there's just no systems in place that support um, maternal health from the very beginning to delivery. No, no, I think I think you covered it. The only thing I'd add is that Florida this year also enacted a 15-week abortion ban. Um, so they're really rolling in, and it's almost it's hard to keep track, to be honest. But yeah, it is. So please check out the resources that we'll link in the episode notes for anyone who's a visual learner wants to see the pictures that I mentioned, the map, um, or just read any articles that we'll link there. To end every episode, I ask, what's your rose and thorn based off of the conversation? Well, I'll start with my thorn because I want to end on a high note. Yeah. Um, I think, honestly, my thorn has been the, um, the sheer amount of work that we need to do. I often feel overwhelmed thinking about how many things I want to happen and how different the world would be if I could just decide. Um, that's scary, but also kind of exhilarating to think we have so much work. We are, we have so many people to talk to. We have so many stories to tell. Um, so sort of a thorn, but, um, like also in a lot of ways, really like wonderful and exciting. And my ultimate rose is hearing people's stories and being connected with so many wonderful people. Like the, the mission doesn't make up for getting paid no money. However, I really appreciate knowing and learning from so many like driven and passionate and brilliant people. Um, like the two of you, like everyone we've worked with. Um, I think that working in abortion, you really get tied to each other. Like you really understand what it means to be part of a community and to owe each other things. And I have really appreciated that and find it just such, I'm so grateful for that part of my life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will do the same. I'm going to start with a thorn or a couple thorns. Um, you know, it's, it's just discouraging to see that after 49 years, we're still here. Um, but are we surprised? Because it's just, uh, we're, we're in the U.S. and this means to you guys. But again, that is not to take away from the hope of, of it all. Um, worker burnout is real within reproductive health. Um, uh, I'm learning that firsthand, um, as many of us have or, or are. Yeah. Um, abortion stigma is still alive and well, and we face it every day. And, uh, you know, I'm constantly trying to figure out new ways to navigate it um, in a way that, you know, is not abrasive and, you know, something that people can learn from. Um, uh, I'm also constantly grappling with the facts. So, it's, it's, you know, it's related in the way that it's it's related to this because it's healthcare, right? Um, the fact that we don't have Medicare for all yet really bothers me day to day working in this field. Uh, we really see the barriers firsthand that our medical system and insurance system upholds for patients. Um, and it's really just disheartening. Um, it makes it incredibly hard for, you know, poor folks and people of color um, to access care. It makes, it, it makes them jump through hoops uh, to, obtain, to obtain any sort of financial help. Um, and when it comes down to it, healthcare is a human right and not a privilege uh, in this country. And, need, and we really need to just start acting like it. Um, so, so that's something that I, I think about a lot as like within my position, I'm gonna become a certified application counselor where I help folks kind of work through our um, insurance system. I just get more and more angry with how 
con- fucking confusing it is. It really my is. Language, but like, I, it makes me just really angry. Um, but that is all to say there are still very good things happening. And um, I, I feel proud about the work that I do. I feel proud when I tell people that a lot of my focus is to expand abortion access in a crucial part of the state, a state that many would not even consider to be um, a state where abortion access has barriers, but it very much does. Um, you know, everyone deserves access to safe and equitable health care. And um, I'm playing a little part of that, which is really great. Uh, and I, I'd say the last thing that gives, fills me with immense joy on so many different levels is um, mutual aid, uh, which I know Maya said. And um, mutual aid is really what will push us forward. Um, it shows community care. Um, I just could go on and on about it. But uh, yeah, that that is something that I think we all really need to focus on and, and take home with us. Like, again, what Maya said with the um, like indie clinics or abortion funds, like making sure that if you want to get involved or have any donations to be made to focus on those, because that is mutual aid in itself. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your rose and thorns. And I usually don't share my rose and thorns, but I will for this episode. And I'll say that Similarly, the thorn um, is the lack of appreciation for workers in the system. And I will say that my rose, um, my rose is the fact that this is my first job. um, And I have the honor of saying that got this job after my experience with the intention of trying to use language and communications to reassure people and being able because of this job to participate in events and seeing supporters come together it just uplifts and I think that if if I didn't have this experience I don't know if I would be publishing this episode and sharing my story and and having this candid conversation I really want to emphasize the point that if you don't work in repro health, that doesn't mean that you can't support. And that doesn't mean you can't have these conversations with your loved ones. And that doesn't mean you can't, you know, show up to a rally or financially support a fund um, or become a clinic escort of some, some nature, you can still get involved. Um, And yeah, I think this it's a great place to end. And and I will note that all of this information um, and this interview happened on June 9th um, to time stamp it all. Throughout the month, there are, I think, three days left where it could be a potential decision day, either next Monday the 13th, Tuesday the 21st, and then Monday the 27th. I believe. Um, so yeah, depending, you know, hopefully I'll get this episode out um, by the 21st, but we'll see what happens until then. Thank, thank you, you so much, Ariana. Thank you. Really, thank you. This was wonderful. Thanks for listening to another episode of Dangerously Dainty, the podcast. Don't miss out on new episodes by turning on notifications for any new releases. And while you're at it, I would love to see you supporting the show by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 
Last but not least, you can also follow the Dangerously Dainty Instagram at dangerously.dainty. Thanks for listening and keeping unexpectedly bold.